Well, happy early Thanksgiving to you all. We uh, already got into the turkey a little bit at our house, so we're a little, a little foretaste of Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Romans 5, and I'm going to uh, read to us verses 12 through 21, which is the section we've been covering for the last few weeks, and probably this will be the last one on this week, but I can't really promise. So I think it's going to be the last one on it. But uh, we will, actually, during the during December, we're going to be on a different topic. Uh, of course, we're going to be preaching about uh, Christmas and the birth of the Messiah. And so we're going to take a break from what we're doing in Romans and move that direction in December, but that's next week. And so this week, we are in Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we come to you this morning as a congregation, and we worship you. We call to mind and remind one another that you are Almighty God. You did not need to create us. You've always existed, eternal and unchanging, self-sufficient, not needing us. And so we worship you. We give you honor. We bow down to you and we set aside this time on a Sunday morning to come to you together. And we worship you. And Father, we praise you for the fact that you did create us, though you didn't need to, you did. And so we owe our very existence to you, and we praise you for that. And we, we owe our continuing existence to you as you sustain us. You give us another breath and another heartbeat. You've given us another day. You sustain us, and so we praise you for that. And we praise you that though we are sinful and rebellious as a whole race. Yet you have not destroyed us, but you've, you have redeemed sinners like us. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he was born as one of us, but always walked in obedience. Thank you that he went to that cross where we should have been to die the death that we deserve to die. 
that we, by faith in him, might have life. And it's that subject that we come here to discuss this morning as we talk about your word, as we look at the fifth chapter of Romans and other things that you have said. Father, we come to rejoice, we come to celebrate, we come to give thanks for what we have by virtue of being in Christ. And so we pray that you would be honored this morning as we celebrate that fact. We pray that you would be lifted up, that your name would be made much of, that we would rejoice in the gospel, that we would rejoice in Christ. We pray also that you would help us to to think about it, to understand, to be built up, to be encouraged, to be prepared for life as a Christian in light of what we read in this chapter. So, Father, we ask that you, by your Spirit, would work in our midst even this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Back in 1996, in the summer of 1996, many of you remember, because uh, my wife and I were fundraising here. We, we lived here. We got married in 95, lived here until the summer of 96, at which point we moved to Russia. And so, actually, many of you uh, probably financially supported us in uh, doing that. And uh, so we obviously appreciate that. and Thank you for your commitment to the Lord's work. We were young and uh, went to Russia. And Russia in the 90s, particularly in the part of Russia we were in, was kind of like the Old West. There were laws, but not everybody obeyed them. But it, it, it was an adventurous time for us to go there. We were very young. We were 22, and Stephanie turned 21 when we uh, shortly after we got there. And so we moved into this apartment and it was a fully furnished apartment because obviously we weren't going to buy any kind of furniture or anything like that during the time and so we rented a, a fully furnished apartment and moved into it and uh, it was a great place it was beautiful it was in, in kind of a new building it was nine stories and we were on the ninth floor and the elevator worked sometimes and uh, otherwise we got exercise as we as we carried our groceries up those nine floors but uh, we didn't know all that much about life in Russia. We didn't know anything about life in Russia. And when we moved into this apartment, it had these wood floors that I would say were beautiful, but maybe with a little care, they could have been beautiful, but uh, they were wooden floors and they were bare and they were cold. And then we looked over and hanging on the wall were these rugs. And we thought, you know, those would do us better if we would put them on the floor because then our feet wouldn't be cold. So we took them off the wall and put them on the floor, and they became floor rugs. Now, in Russia, the same as in Canada, you take your shoes off at the door, and, and usually a home will provide you with slippers, so you'll put on slippers and whatnot. So it's a, it, you know, the floor doesn't get all that dirty usually. But here we were walking on these rugs, which we thought was a great solution until our Russian acquaintances started coming over, and, and we could see them looking at these rugs on the floor and then looking at us, and they didn't want to embarrass us, so they didn't point out that you know those go on the wall, not on the floor. And they're not for walking on, they're for looking at. And uh, they didn't say any of those things. They just looked at us funny. And it wasn't until uh, quite a while later that we realized our faux pas there. But, but uh, the moral of the story is that we didn't know what the rugs were for. And we saw multiple uses for them. And we chose poorly. <laughs> and we put them on the floor and we walked on them. It made our life more comfortable as we walked around on these rugs instead of on the hard floor, but we just didn't know what to do with them. They were great rugs. We just didn't know how to apply them. We didn't know how to use them. We didn't know what they were for, what they were meant to accomplish. And so we kind of used them in our own way. Well, we've spent the last several weeks in this passage <clears throat> from Romans uh, chapter 5 and verse 12 down through 21, we've spent quite a while on just these verses. And, and it, it occurs to me that I don't want us to take the rugs from the wall and put them on the floor with this. That we need to understand what is meant to be taught and how we are to apply, what encouragement we are to draw from these verses that we've talked about. There's a lot of doctrine here. Scholars point out the fact that uh, <clears throat> second only perhaps to uh, chapter 3, verses 21 through 26, which was a very dense doctrinal section explaining justification, second only perhaps to that, we have the greatest theological density here in these verses, that there's a lot being taught. So what are we to do with it? Do we take it off the wall and put it on the floor? Or do we 
understand what it's for. And so the goal of our talk today as we work through this chapter is to give thanks for headship. We've been talking about headship, and that's what these passages are about, as we have the description given, the comparison and contrast between Adam and Christ, between what they've accomplished and what we inherit as a result, and what it means to be in Adam and what it means to be in Christ. We've seen all the way through this passage that he's weaving those concepts together, and he wants us to draw certain conclusions from that. And so this morning, we want to draw those conclusions. We want to give thanks to God for what we learn in these verses about headship. And so that's the goal of our time today. But I want to start off. You see, you've got two main points there in your outline. And I want to start off with some objections to headship. Because sometimes when we read through this, if we, if we don't read too quickly and miss the stuff, if we really think about it and contemplate what's going on in the passage, it can raise some objections for us. There are several statements that Paul makes in this chapter, just in this section alone, that are striking to the modern reader. They stand out. They seem to be harsh. For example, verse 15, Paul says, Many died through one man's trespass. Verse 16, The judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Verse 17, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Verse 18, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. You see the problem? You have, you have one person doing something. You have one person's trespass. You have one person's disobedience. And it results in judgment, in death, in condemnation, not just for him. But in verse 18, for all men. Verse 19 says, by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. That's harsh language. I like to tease about how individualistic Nevadans are and how, how we, we like to be on our own. And, and uh, that, that is teasing, but I think it's also true. And I'm a Nevadan also, so I'm right there with you. We're individualistic. We tend to think in terms of what I've done, what I've accomplished, what I deserve, we tend to think in those kinds of terms. And, and we are not alone. We may be extreme in that, but we're, we're not alone in that. So this raises some objections when you read those kind of verses. The first big objection is, what about me? What about me? That's the objection of individualism. After all, we're all unique, aren't we? We don't like to be put in a box. We never like to be put in a box. Oh, you're just a such and such. No, what? no, no. I mean, you know, I may fit the majority of those criteria, but really, see, I'm my own in these different ways. I'm unique. We feel like somehow it lessens our identity. It lessens who we are. If we can be categorized in such a way, if we, if we think of ourselves in something different than uh, in an individualistic way. But the Bible makes very strong statements about all people. You think about that? The Bible talks about all people. Paul doesn't know me. Paul doesn't know you. How can he say, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God? He doesn't know you. He didn't examine your life. He didn't test and see. He doesn't know me. How can he say that no one seeks for God when he doesn't know everyone? How can he make such a statement, such a bold statement? Well, the answer to that objection is that the Bible has in mind our corporate identity. The Bible understands us as an entire race, as all of us who are born in Adam. God views us corporately. We are born into Adam. We share his nature. We share his sins. We share his fate, all by virtue of our union with him, the fact that he is our head. And likewise, when we are born again, when we are born anew, when we are born into Christ, we, we, we partake of His Spirit. We partake of His righteousness and His inheritance by virtue of our union with Him. So the Bible views the world in a different way than we tend to do. We tend to think in terms of the individual. God is able to look and see all of 
humanity. He's able to think in terms that are corporate rather than individualistic. So he sees us as a part of that. He sees us within Adam or within Christ. So that's the the first objection. What about me? The second one is, it's not fair. It's not fair. This is the, the objection about fairness. It's not fair that we should inherit Adam's sin when we didn't do it. It's not fair that we should inherit the consequences of Adam's sin when we didn't do it. That was his sin, not ours. And so it's not fair. This is a very common objection. But here's the answer that I would give to that objection. Then it's not fair that our sin should be given to Christ. That's not fair. I mean, after all, Jesus was innocent. He was obedient. He didn't deserve what you and I deserve. He was righteous. He was holy, completely obedient. The one person who did not deserve judgment. The one person who did not deserve death. And so if we're going to complain about the fairness the other direction, let's think about the fairness of our sin being put on Him. Let's think about His righteousness being given to us. Paul says elsewhere, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin. That's not fair. And that is not fair. That our sin be put on Him. But He gives the purpose, So that in Him we might become the righteousness of of God. Also not fair. One, one, uh, one man put it this way. If sin cannot be imputed from one to many, because it's unfair, conversely, it cannot be imputed from many to one. Under this method, how can we maintain that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, the righteous for the unrighteous? Shouldn't this violate our sense of justice? And if our sins were not imputed to Christ, neither can His righteousness become ours. So when we make the objection of fairness, that it doesn't seem fair, we need to think about the other side. We need to think about the truly unfair side of what happens with our sin being applied to Christ with Him dying in our place. We need to think about some of the things that have been mentioned here in in our passage, the positive side, the other side, the side we rejoice in about imputation. For example, verse 15 says, the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, have abounded, the one man, have abounded for many. Or verse 16, the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. I don't mind that unfairness. Or verse 17, those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Verse 18, one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. That injustice doesn't bother me in the least. Verse 19, by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So we need to think about that if we're going to make the objection about the fairness problem, it's not fair that I should inherit Adam's sin. It's not fair that I should inherit the punishment for Adam's sin. Then we also need to think about the way Paul puts this together, that it is directly tied to our sin being placed on Christ. And us inheriting from Christ righteousness and life, peace with God. So I don't want to make the objection about fairness. There's too much at stake. So those are the two objections that we need to get out of our way as we begin to work our way through now. Headship, the Christian, and life. So what I want to do is talk about these different aspects. What does a good understanding of headship teach us about the Christian and judgment? First of all, well, this is kind of a review of chapter 5. This is what he's been talking about in, in chapter 5. The way Adam's sin is imputed to us is the same way that Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. 
The judgment we inherited from Adam is exchanged for the righteousness of Christ and the judgment on those grounds. That exchange that happens, what we learn about our connection with Adam, what we inherit from him, is the same paradigm. It's the same way God gives us righteousness in Christ because we are in in him. We have imputed to our account what has happened with Christ. And so if we confuse headship, if we misunderstand headship, we begin to misunderstand the gospel. We begin to change the way God really does grant forgiveness, how God really does grant peace with him, righteousness counted to our account. We have to understand, we need to understand this idea of imputation. And so, folks, we need to, we need to give thanks to God for, for headship. The, the dark side of it, the, the side of it where we inherit from Adam is hard to take. But it's the same way we inherit the joy and the peace and the righteousness, the forgiveness because of Christ. So we need to understand headship so that we can understand the Christian and judgment. Why it is that we who have done such things can escape the judgment for those things. It's because we've been transferred from Adam into Christ. Where the price has been paid. Where there's peace with God. Well, secondly, what does the biblical understanding of headship teach us about the Christian and sin? Well, that takes us into the next chapter. That takes us into chapter 6, where we begin with a question in chapter 6 there. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? So if, if we've been transferred from Adam into Christ, and thus we inherit those things from being in Christ, if that is true of us, what about our relationship with sin? Should, should we just continue in sin? That's the question that he asks. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, what's the believer's relationship with sin in light of this free pardon that's ours in Christ? And this is so often the objection of the legalist when you share the gospel with them. Well, then you could just live however you wanted. So Paul asks that question. Okay, in light of the gospel, can we just live however we want? He actually addresses that very question. Can we just continue in sin? Well, our, our union with Christ is of such a nature that when Christ died, we died. When we died, we were set free from the dominion of sin. See, we are, we are bound to, we are, we are a slave to sin as long as we're alive. But we died. We died in Christ. When we, when we were placed into Christ, He, as our federal head, died, and we died with Him. So now we have died, therefore sin is no longer in dominion over us. It doesn't have that position of authority anymore. He says in verse 7, One who has died has been, has been set free from sin. So not only did we die to sin when Christ died, but we were raised with Christ. When he was raised, we were raised to newness of life so that now we have a new life that is not enslaved to sin like our old life was. And though, of course, the end time resurrection is still coming, yet we have a foretaste of it right now. We have been raised with him so that we are alive. We are no longer dead. We are no longer bound to be obedient to sin. We are no longer enslaved to sin. Instead, we've become slaves to righteousness, servants of righteousness, servants of God. We've been, we've been given new life so that we can serve God himself. In Christ, we have a new power working in us that has freed us from the rule of sin and makes us obedient to God from the heart. And so, no, we're, we're an entirely new person. Can we continue in sin? No, we don't continue in sin. He says, back in chapter 6 and verse 2, he says, by no means... How can we who died to sin still live in it? You're dead to it. You have a new life. You no longer live the old life under sin. And so our relationship with sin has fundamentally changed. Sin is no longer our master. Sin is no longer in dominion over us. We don't have to obey. We don't have to follow where sin leads. Our relationship has changed. What about the Christian and the law? What does federal headship teach us about the Christian 
and law. Well, this brings us into chapter 7 of Paul's book as he continues arguing about what the consequences, what's the, what are the results of this federal headship in our lives. Well, God has made known to us his standards, his expectations. When he revealed the law, he's revealing what he wants us to do, what he wants us to be like. He's revealing what it means to walk like God. It's a revelation of his character and his nature. And so he reveals the law, he reveals his standards, his expectations. And that revelation is made to all people, by the way. Whether it's someone who has the written law, or whether it's someone like in chapter 1 who just has that internal understanding of what God wants, an understanding of who God is and what He's like that we all have within us, Regardless, we know what God wants and we know what God hates. The problem is, whether we have the external law or we have that internal law only, we don't obey either one. So we see this issue that that people don't keep the law, that God has given us His expectations one way or another, and we don't follow, we don't meet, we don't live up to those expectations. The law is good. And it's a good standard. And what happens when we look at that good standard? Our sin shows itself. Our rebellion. God tells us what to do and and the natural man will not do it. Or he will bend it and do something that looks like it, but for his own reasons and for his own good. And so he breaks the law. And so the law, which is good doesn't have the power to change. It doesn't have the power to do away with our sin, to overcome our sin, because it's out there. It requires us to obey it in our flesh, in our own strength, and we just can't do it in Adam. And so the law looms over all people who are in Adam. But Christ died. And when Christ died, we who are in Him died. So that that relationship between us and the law has been broken. We're no longer obedient to the law in that sense. We're no longer uh, submitted to it as our way to please God. We have died to it. It no longer has dominion over us. He gives the example in the beginning of chapter 7 with with a a woman. if, If she were, while she's married, to go and marry another person, she would be considered an adulterer. But if her husband dies then that law binding her to him breaks that relationship. And now she's free to remarry. And she would not be considered an adulterer. That's because she has died, or he has died, to the law. And and he says, Paul says that the Christian in Christ has died to the law. And so its yoke is broken for us. We're no longer enslaved to it. Now, the law has a a new place, a new relationship with us who are in Christ. Because remember, the law is a description of of what it means to walk the way God wants you to walk. And that hasn't changed just because you are now in Christ. We used the illustration in our connect group just this week of, I say we, I think my wife came up with it. I'll give her full credit. You don't... uh, we as Beheimers don't give a set of rules and say, okay, if you obey these rules, we will declare you a Beheimer. No, you're born a Beheimer, and we have a set of rules. We have a set of things that we do and don't do that are indicative of what it means to be a Beheimer. Well, which came first? Well, the identity as the Beheimer came first. And the, the same is true with us and the law. Now, we still have a relationship with the law. The law is still there and we are still to obey it, but we obey it as those who are already in Christ. And now we say, well, how, how would our Father want us to live? How does God want us to live? Well, here, let me describe for you. Don't lie. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. And on and on. That's a description of what it means to walk as a child of God, to act like, to live as a child of God. But now... There's something different. It's no longer a law by which we are trying to earn God's favor, by which we are trying to measure up to become something, to become a child of God. Instead, we have the law that's given to us 
for how we walk as children of God. It's a completely different motivation. It's a completely different relationship between us and the law. And he argues in chapter 7 that for the believer, the law convicts us of sin and it arouses in us the heart's desire to obey it because we love God. We are children of God and we want to do what he says. And so that drives the believer to Christ all the more because obedience to the law can only be done by the grace of God in Christ. And so even in that context, we run to Jesus seeking His help, seeking His grace to obey what God would have us do. And so what's the relationship between the believer and law? Well, headship tells us that we died to the law when Christ died to it, and so we're no longer subservient to to it. We're no longer under it trying to accomplish it in order to please God or to measure up to Him. Instead, it's been accomplished in Christ. And now we look at that same law very differently, and we say, oh, this is... This is how I want to behave because God is my Father and I want to be like Him. So our relationship with law is changed drastically when we think in terms of headship. Well, fourthly, what can we take away from this doctrine that helps us understand the Christian and the flesh? Well, that brings us to chapter 8 of Romans, which may be the most encouraging chapter in the entire Bible. We who are in Christ... We've had our eternal destiny changed. We've had our relationship to sin and the law changed. But we still live in this world. And we still live in this body. And so we wrestle with these things. And so we can resonate with Paul when he says at the end of chapter 7, he says, I delight in the law of God and my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I still carry around this body, not not this flesh and blood, this skin and that kind of stuff, but I still live in this life, in this world with this flesh. And so he says, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So I still face sin. I still live in a world of sin. I still sin. Even though my relationship has fundamentally changed, yet I am bound to this body. I live in this flesh. And so with that question, with that exclamation, with that crying out at the end of chapter 7, thus he begins chapter 8 with these words that have encouraged Christians for 2,000 years. There is therefore now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus sets us free. He has worked in us. He has set us free and accomplished. He has paid the penalty for us so that in Him we no longer have condemnation. So that though we live with our hearts and our minds serving the law of God, yet we know that we still live in this body, this mortal body, this body of death, he calls it at the end of chapter 7. But we are perfectly secure in Christ. He he has met, Christ has met all of the requirements of the law in himself. And now he has given us his Holy Spirit within us to give life to our mortal bodies that, that we might walk in newness of life, that we might actually be obedient to God's law from our heart because of His Spirit working within us. And so He's at work not only to positionally save us and put us in a place where, yeah, there's no condemnation, but good luck dealing with that sin. He puts us in a place where there's no condemnation and He takes His Spirit to put within us to give us life so that we begin to see God at work even practically in my life, in my body. As the things that are true of me by statement, by declaration, become true of me practically in my life as I begin to walk more and more like Him. Or as He puts it in chapter 8, the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead, He dwells in you, and He will also give life to your mortal bodies just like He raised Jesus. So that's our, that's our relationship. That's what federal headship has to do with the Christian and the flesh. And related to that same topic, is the relationship of the Christian and sanctification. Okay, so 
Sanctification is the doctrine that we are to grow in holiness practically in our lives. That we will, we've been declared to be righteous by God, by declaration, and now practically in our life, we grow more and more into that so that you can see the justification in my life. You can see sanctification begin to happen. It's a slow process. It takes place over time. But what's happening is we are being fitted. We are becoming what we already are. We are becoming practically in our lives, being lived out what has already been true of us by declaration. That we become more and more like Christ in our lives. And so Paul can make these statements. Philippians chapter 2 verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, put feet on your salvation. Put flesh on it. Act it out. Make it real. Make it known. Make it visible. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You see, God has worked in us not just to declare us to be righteous and then give us a pat on the back and and cheer for us as we struggle through life. In fact, He is at work in us by His Holy Spirit to conform us, to make us more and more like Him practically in our lives. Which is what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body... Did you catch that? May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May he sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He is at work in you. By placing us in Christ, there is a union between us and Him so that it's not just a declaration on paper or in a courtroom somewhere. But it changes who we are. And it becomes visible more and more, even on the outside. Romans 8, 29. Paul says, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. That means that God is at work conforming you, Christian, to the image of His Son. You were placed into Christ at the moment of conversion. You were placed into Christ. And now He is shaping you and making you more and more like that practically. He's conforming you practically into the image of His Son. What about the Christian and faith? What does federal headship teach us Help us to understand about the relationship between the Christian and faith. Well, chapter 5 teaches us, and really all of Romans and the Bible, teaches us that the only righteousness that is acceptable to God is perfect righteousness. Not pretty good righteousness. Not even stellar righteousness, though partially incomplete. Only perfect Complete righteousness is acceptable to God. And Christ is the only one who has perfect and complete righteousness that is acceptable to God. He's the only one with it. And so what must I do? What what righteousness must I perform? How can I have peace with God? Well, I have to have perfect righteousness. And I don't. And I can't conjure it up. I can't work hard enough to make it happen. I can't do it. And so it's out there. It's, it's what Christ has accomplished. The theologians say it's an alien righteousness, meaning it's not mine. It's not from within me. It's out there. It's what he's done. Well, how can it be mine? Because that's the only way God can be satisfied is by this righteousness. It's by faith. It's by faith. It's, it's when we finally stop looking to our own accomplishment and instead look to him. That's the righteousness I need. I need His. I have to have His. Mine will not cut it. I must have His. And so by faith, when we look at Christ that way, when we turn our eyes that direction, we're placed into Christ. We're placed into Christ. So that now we have righteousness and peace and sanctification and 
joy and hope and life because we are in Christ. And that happens by faith. One man put it this way. He said, it is faith that places us in the proper relation to this righteousness because faith is receiving and resting. It is self-renouncing. It looks away from itself and finds its all in Christ. We realize, I can't. And so we just look to Him. We receive His righteousness. We rest in that righteousness. And we renounce the seeking of that in our own lives. So that's how federal headship helps us understand why the Christian must relate to God by faith, by faith alone. It's because we're entirely spoiled. We, in Adam, do not have what it takes. And so, finally, what's the, what does a proper understanding of federal headship teach us about the Christian and the Christ? Well, it was already hinted at by what I just read. That man said that faith, it's faith that places us in the proper relation to this righteousness because faith is receiving and resting. It is self-renouncing. It looks away from itself and finds its all in Christ. Where is our all? It's not in me getting better. Where is my hope? It's not in me getting better. It's in Him. My joy is in Him. My peace is in Him. My life is in Him. My righteousness is in Him. Everything is in Him. And so the relationship between the Christian and the Christ is informed by federal headship as we understand what it means to be in Him, as we understand what it means that we have been transferred into Him and now all that I have is from Him. My inheritance, my life, forgiveness, peace, righteousness, hope, it's all in Him. It's all from Him. It's all what He has earned, what He has deserved. And He gives to us who are in Him because He's our federal head. All the while, going back to chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, if you, if you write in your Bible, I encourage you to, to take some time this afternoon or sometime this week. It's Thanksgiving week. You want to be thankful for stuff. Start circling one, the number one in this chapter, in 5, 12 through 21. And you will see the emphasis throughout is on what the one has accomplished. The one has accomplished. The one has accomplished. Often it's, it's in contrast to or, or it, it comes out of what the one man Adam accomplished. But the emphasis in this passage is on what the one man Jesus Christ has done. What he has accomplished. And so I take my cue from that. We take our cue from that, that the emphasis on this, in this passage is on what Jesus has done, what he has accomplished, what he has earned for those who are in him. And so we preach Christ. Not the Christian. We focus on Him and what He's done. We, we lift Him up before you, before all of us, that our eyes would be drawn to Him, that, that our faith in Him would be increased, that we would look to Him all the more, that we would find our confidence and our hope and our life in Him. And so we preach Christ and we lift Him up. We could preach the Christian life. We could preach principles and rules for how to change this and do that. And sometimes that's a good thing to do and that's appropriate. But a steady diet of that gradually takes our eyes down off of the Christ and puts them onto the Christian. And we dare not do that. And so from this pulpit, we preach Christ. We lift Him up. We exalt Him. That means various things about our Christian life. And, by the way, it is, it is our expectation, it's, it's the expectation of every Christian that when we go home from a sermon, when we go home from a teaching time, that you think about it and you think about how that applies. That doesn't absolve me from, from applying that in a sermon. But I maybe think of a few examples and your situation is entirely different. The responsibility is on you, having heard what you learned, now to apply it in your life. It means something to you that I don't even comprehend because I don't know your circumstances. 
And so we preach Christ and we lift him up. And that may apply itself in your own Christian life in a myriad of ways that I don't understand. So we preach Christ. And so, as our final point of application, Christian, this is what you need to do in your own life, is preach Christ and look to Him. Keep your eyes fixed on Him. Some of us have a tendency to to look at ourselves, to examine our own heart always, to be living right here. Where we're just looking down, we're just looking at ourselves, we're, we're thinking about how I can do better, how I can change this, how I can... And you're the subject of all of those verbs. It, it's important for us to know how we can make changes in our lives. It's important for us to stop doing certain things, start doing certain things. Living out the Christian life is a reality. It's practical. But it must stem from a true understanding of Christ and what He has done for us. And we don't get a true understanding of Christ and what He's done for us merely by reading through Romans 5, 12 through 21. We need to live in that truth. And so as you go out and as you approach your Thanksgiving week, contemplate Christ. Preach Christ to yourself. Remind yourself of what He has done. Remind yourself of the fact that all that you have is from Him. This inheritance, this forgiveness, this condemnation having been removed and, and right relationship with God restored, peace and joy and life and all of that, you have all of it because of Christ. Apart from Him, you have none of it. And so, Christian, turn your eyes to Him. Turn your eyes to Him. Don't let your Christian life be about six ways that you can solve this problem or that you can address this aspect in your life. Those things have their place, but they must have their place underneath an understanding of who Christ is and what He's done. And that's what Paul does. That's why I walked us through 5, 6, 7, and 8, is because he has established this doctrine of what Christ has done, and then he begins to apply it in relationship to sin, chapter 6, in relationship to the law, chapter 7, in relationship to the flesh, chapter 8, and on and on and on. This is what we need to do also. We preach Christ. We don't preach the Christian. And you need to preach Christ to yourself. So if you're someone here this morning who's maybe never heard this or doesn't know Christ, this is what it means to be in Christ. This is what it means. Is you inherit what He has earned. The alternative are those hard statements about what it means to be an Adam that I read earlier. We inherit his sin. We inherit his condemnation. We become sinners just like him. We remain alienated from God. The good news is, the gospel is, what Christ has accomplished. And if you will look away from yourself, and if you will look to Him, and if you will trust in Him, and if you will receive from Him this righteousness, this inheritance, this forgiveness, if you will, if you will look away from yourself to Him, that's called faith. And you'll be included in Christ. And your entire destiny, your entire inheritance, your entire identity, who you are, what you value, what you love will change. And you'll be made a child of God because of Christ. So that's the message of 5, 12 through 21 of Romans. That's, that's what we have to give thankful for. And that's an amazing amount to, give, to be thankful for. Give thanks to God for what He's done for us in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we do give you thanks for what you have done for us in Christ. We were born in Adam. We inherited what he gave us, sin and guilt, condemnation, and we 
we actively ran into that in our own lives. We, we followed after that. We, we, we did that ourselves so that his inheritance bore fruit in our lives. And yet, at some time, for most of us, the gospel came. And we understood there was forgiveness in Christ. We understood that we could have a, a different father, that we could have a different head, a different inheritance we would look to Christ. Father, I, I praise you that you drew my eyes to Christ. I will praise you forever. Each of us who knows you will praise you forever for the fact that you drew our eyes to Christ away from ourself. And we receive such an inheritance. Father, I pray that you would help each of us as we go away and we think about how this truth of Christ as our federal head impacts all of life. The way we relate to sin, the way we relate to temptation, trial, one another, death, life, God. Everything has been changed by the fact that we are in Christ. Father, for those who are not, I pray that you would draw them to yourself. I pray that you would draw their eyes away from themselves to you. That they might know this freedom, this forgiveness, this new life in Christ. That they might know this Messiah, this new federal head. That we will worship forever. Who was willing to give himself that we might have such benefit. Father, I pray as we go about this Thanksgiving week, I pray that we would turn our eyes and our hearts to you often. We would call to mind what you've done. Father, I, I rejoice. I, I have an inkling of what I deserve. And that is not my inheritance because of Christ. So, Father, we love you and we pray that you would take this word proclaimed and that it would stick with us, that we would think about it, that we would think about our Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Tonight is our Thanksgiving prayer service. Starts at 6 o'clock. I would love to see you all here. There will be someone up front to pray with you now. Otherwise, God bless you all, and you're dismissed.